Today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures, a five-generation Georgia-based beef and poultry farm determined to conduct business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. And on the line today, I have uh, Margo Wooten, who is the Director of Nutrition Policy at the Center for Science in the Public Interest. And just as an aside, it fills me with uh, deep comfort to know that there actually is a Center (laughs) for Science in the Public Interest. Anyway, Ms. Wooten received her BS in Nutrition from Cornell University and her doctorate in Nutrition from Harvard University School of Public Health. She co-founded and coordinates the activities of the National Alliance for Nutrition and Activity and the Food Marketing Workgroup she has coordinated coordinated and led efforts to require calorie labeling at fast food and other chain restaurants, require trans fat labeling on packaged foods, improve school foods, reduce junk food marketing aimed at children, and expanded the nutrition and physical activity program at CDC. Wooten has received numerous awards and is quoted regularly in the nation's major media. Welcome to the program, Ms. Wooten. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much for having me. You know, people with a a bio like yours just always make me feel really depressed about myself. (laughs) Oh, no. Because it's really all about me, Margo. I'm food obsessed. I love (laughs) to think about food, cook it, study it, work on it. So I'm just lucky that somebody pays me to think about food all day. Yeah, no kidding. It's really great. And thank goodness you think about it from the point of view of the public interest, because indeed, the reason that we are talking today is because some brand new regulations have finally been passed about snacks in schools. And by that, we mean what is available in vending machines. Is that right? Let's talk a little bit about why those are called competitive foods and um sort of how that's going to change, what's going to change with these new regulations. You know, when most parents think about school foods, they just think about it all together. But from a regulatory point of view here in Washington and folks who run food service programs, we kind of split school foods into two camps. There's Mm -hmm. school lunch and school breakfast, which have their own set of standards. And then there's kind of everything else. So these rules relate to vending, school stores, Foods that are sold individually or a la carte in the cafeteria, fundraisers. So it's kind of everything that's sold in schools outside of the lunch and breakfast program. And those things that are sold in schools that are outside of the lunch and breakfast programs are are products that are generally uh, for-profit for the school. Isn't that right? I mean, what you're talking about in terms of school lunch and breakfast is generally a federally funded program or at least partially federally funded. And then these other things are things that, that people, that the schools often themselves make money on. Am I Am I correct in that? Yeah, different people make money depend on who's doing the selling and where it's mm-hmm. sold. So the bulk of these foods are actually sold in the cafeteria by the food service program. Those are the a la carte items. Mm -hmm. So if a child goes through the lunch line and gets an entree, a fruit, vegetable, and a milk, that's a lunch. And then the school gets either fully reimbursed if the child is low income or partially Mm -hmm. reimbursed if the child isn't. And then, but if the child wants to buy things individually, like just a cookie or just a bag of chips or just the pizza without the milk and a side of vegetable, 
then it's handled differently. The standards are different, mm-hmm. and there's no reimbursement for it. And a lot of times, those foods are not very healthy. Right. I, you know, this is fascinating. I've done a lot of programs around school food, but I've never had it really broken down quite this way for my, you know, for me or for my listeners. So I'm so glad you joined me today because um, I actually went to the mayoral forum on food in the future of New York City, which happened last night. Um, and six of the seven mayoral candidates came out and, and talked to Dr. Marion Nessel, who I'm sure you know very well, um, about uh, what their various programs were. And one of the biggest topics was school food. And, you know, frankly, it was like listening to, you know, a bunch of fairy tales told by six different writers. I mean, it was, they all had these like pie in the sky ideas about what they were going to, they kept talking about the stigma of school food and blah, blah, blah. And, um, and, you know, only one guy, John Liu actually said, we really just need to make it taste better. So they'll eat it. <laughs> well, you know, we're kind of getting really to pie in the sky. There's been so much progress on school meals. Yeah. In the last couple of years, we have new standards for lunches that went into effect last year, right? Uh, and the schools are doing pretty well toward meeting them. Now we're going to address next year getting out the candy, the chips, and the soda, and other junk. And, you know, generally schools are focusing a lot on the whole school nutrition environment because it has such a huge effect on kids' diets. It's about a third of the calories that they're eating, right. and it affects how they think about food. You know, yes. not only what they're eating while they're in childhood, but they're learning how to eat healthier so that hopefully they'll eat better throughout their lifetime. Yes, absolutely. Um, well, my favorite candidate, strangely enough, was Sal Albanese, who I never thought I would like. And one of the things he said is he wanted to bring back like f- nutritional education and phys ed in every single school. And I thought, okay, <laughs> you know, there's, yeah, we there's a real start, you know. I mean, I, as a mother and as a nutrition professional, you know, I think it's just as important to teach your kids you know, including through modeling through mm. what's sold in the school to teach your kids how to avoid heart disease and diabetes and yeah. cancer as it is to learn geography. I mean, these are essential life skills that will help kids throughout their whole life stay healthier, be productive members of you know, of the country. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I, you know, my, I've been doing this program for four years in one form or another. And my mantra has always been, if you don't teach kids how to cook, then you can, you know, put all the great food in the world in front of them. But eventually they're, they're still going to go back to Popeye's and and McDonald's if they don't know what to do with a fresh piece of, you know, whatever. So anyway, but let's, Mm -hmm. let's talk a quick moment about um, the history of how vending machines and sodas and all of that stuff became um, ubiquitous in school cafeterias. What was the legislation that, or what was the lack of legislation that allowed that sort of encroachment of, um, you know, junk food into the school system? When, when did that really start? I, I'm trying to remember because I'm too old. didn't happen to me. I think it started in the 70s when school funding was hit hard. And as schools were looking for ways to pay for, you know, basic school functions as well as the extras, they found that if they sold food, they could make money. So in the cafeteria, Uh when there wasn't enough funding for the school lunch, they could sell pizza and french fries and chips in the a la carte line and help fill in funding gaps. For the band, the key club, you know, every other club Mm -hmm. in the school, the PTA, when they needed money for whatever their school happened to need, they turned to bake sales and vending machines and selling candy bars and pizza dough, pizza kits and cookie dough. And so it's just been, you know, gradually over the years, more and more folks in the school selling 
unhealthy foods. Mm -hmm. And then it wasn't until, you know, obesity rates really hit this incredibly, you know, high level that just shocked the country where the whole country really started thinking about this. You know, people like me have been talking about obesity for, you know, 20 years, right. our organization <laughs> even longer. But, you know, when you started just walking down the street and going to the shopping mall and going to the beach and seeing that, you know, two-thirds of Americans are overweight or obese and a third of kids are, mm-hmm. it really hit home that we've got to make some changes to make it easier for our parents to feed their kids healthier and really easy for all of us who want to eat better to be able to do it. Yeah, again, it goes back to education and knowing how to, you know, boil water, essentially. But anyway, so now we have what's called the new interim final regulations. What are they? And why why are they called interim if they're also called final? So the interim part of it, most people don't even have to think about. These are really basically final. The interim just allows people who are really into the weeds in this program to make little tweaks and changes that we find, like, as they're being rolled out, there was a typo here, which actually has a meaningful impact, or there's a little glitch in Uh, trying to implement the standard as it is. It's really just for technical fixes. I see. And it gives the agency some flexibility. So the interim part, you don't have to think about at all. That's more for, you know, a couple of us in Washington and the agency and food service directors to worry about. Right. Um, They're really basically final regulations, Uh and they're... A comprehensive, nutri- a comprehensive set of nutrition standards that one set for foods and one set for beverages, and they're really amazingly good. I thought so. You know, I read them yesterday. Yeah, like ours. You know, we usually find something we don't like, and there are things that maybe <laughs> I'd do a little bit differently, but overall this is going to mean a huge improvement to school foods across the country, even mm-hmm. for states like California and Kentucky, Mississippi, that already have their own state standards. Uh-huh. Even in those states, they're going to get better. So, like, among the standards, do you want to just roll out a couple of the basic things? I mean, I, I saw when I read the regulations, I was I was surprised to see, like, for instance, um, if water is the first ingredient, then the second ingredient must be, uh, you know, a real fruit or a real grain or a real something. In other words, um, you can't just, uh, well, give us a contrasted, like, if you... Instead of a Doritos in your vending machine, what are they going to have? Are nutrition bars, or how, how is it? How is it really going to change? What's going to happen? So, one of the most important parts of the guidelines, the standards, is that there'll actually have to be food in the food. I know that sounds <laughs> ridiculous. You know, most people think like it's all food, but you know, so no, no, much no, of no, what's today isn't really food. It's yes. just like fortified junk. Yeah, and. This really shifts the focus to not only making sure that the food is low in the bad stuff, you know, it's modest in calories, it's low in fat, salt, and sugar. Right. But, you know, so that stuff's really important and the standards are good for that. But also it has to provide some nutrition to kids. It has Mm -hmm. to be a fruit, a vegetable, a whole grain, a low-fat dairy product, some nuts. Like, it can't just, companies won't be able to just add some vitamin C you a popsicle and say this sugar water with added vitamin C is good for kids. That's right. So it'll have to be like real food. And that's going to be a big shift. Yeah. You know, there'll still be some baked chips, but, and the food won't be perfect, but you'll see more fruit cups and trail mix and dried fruit and nuts instead of candy bars and snack cakes and Doritos. And so I think the food will be not only lower 
in the problem nutrients, which are real problems in kids' diets, but also they'll be nourishing for kids. Right. So if you decide to opt out of actually eating lunch and just buy yourself a couple of snacks out of the vending machine, which I know my daughter does regularly, I have a teenager too, um, it won't be two bags of Doritos and a Coke. It'll be like juice and, or not even juice. I think, I think even juice was kind of on the low on the list of, uh, of, um, of things that were available. Wasn't it? It had to be like a hundred, you know, a certain percentage of real juice. It's not juice from concentrate or it's not flavored sugar water. Um, it's got to be the real thing. But even that, it was more, I saw a lot of stuff around the beverages uh, being water and it could be flavored waters, but no added sugars and no added salts and all that kind of stuff. I thought that was really impressive. Um, but so who, who developed these standards? Was that part of your work as uh, the, the Center for Science and the Public Interest or was that federal regulations that the USDA developed? How, how did that happen? Well, lots of people have been working to make this a possibility. Mm-hmm. So states and localities have been putting policies in place and, and moving forward. And so a law, we worked on a law with Senator Harkin and Senator Markowski, a bipartisan bill that um, had great support from a wide range of organizations. Right. And we worked to pass it in 2010 that required USDA to update these standards for all the foods that are sold outside the meal programs. So USDA wrote a set of standards based on a lot of the models that are out there, on what states and localities are doing, on what the Institute of Medicine recommended and other experts recommended, and looking at what the industry has voluntarily already agreed to do. Mm -hmm. And they came up with this set of standards based on all of that. And then there was an opportunity for public comment, and over 240,000 people commented, mostly saying, the overwhelming majority saying, these are great, and then organizations like ours saying, you know, these are great. Here's a few little things to fix. Right. And USDA went through all those comments and came out with these final guidelines. What a relief to see the FDA or the USDA actually do, <laughs> excuse me, but do their job. I mean, I do a lot of work around antibiotics, for instance, in the food system. And, and um, the USDA and the FDA have both fallen down very sadly on that job. And it's, you know, I consider it a huge public crisis. Um, you know, Margo, we're going to take a short uh, sponsor drop break and we'll be right back. Uh, so please stay tuned, my listeners, to uh, Margo Wooten, who has um, been at the head of developing new regulations for school uh, vending machines and, um, and is, from, uh, is joining us from the Center for Science and the Public Interest. We'll be right back. White Oak Pastures is the only farm in the United States that has its own USDA-inspected red meat abattoir or slaughterhouse and its own USDA-inspected poultry abattoir or slaughterhouse. We partner with Whole Foods to deliver our high-quality meat and poultry from Miami, Florida, all the way to Princeton, New Jersey. One family, one farm, five generations, 145 years. A full circle return to sustainable land stewardship and humane animal stockmanship. For more information, please visit our website, whiteoakpastures.com. You're listening to Kill Me in the Summertime by Dead Stars on the Heritage Radio Network.org. And this is 
What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. And I'm speaking this mor- this afternoon with Margot Wooten, who is the director, uh, who is the, basically the spearhead. She's the director of nutrition policy at the Center for Science and the Public Interest and has been um, on the forefront of developing or helping to push through new regulations on how uh, vending machines and competitive foods in schools are um, regulated and uh, how much they will improve over the next few years. Now, these, these new regulations are going to phase in in a couple of over a couple of years, right? These regulations will go into effect in the next school year, so in the school year beginning in the summer uh-huh. of 2014, and they'll go into effect all at once in full force. The school lunch standards have been phasing in and breakfast as well, but the, for the foods outside the meals, the snacks and beverages, those will go into effect all at once starting next year. Yeah, parents must be just totally rejoicing. I mean, how much press have you gotten for this? Because to me, this seems like a huge achievement, because I know very well how much pushback there has been from uh, industry, from the food and beverage industry around uh, trying to make changes in these vending machines and competitive foods. Can you talk a little bit about how um, industry has responded to the new regulations? And, and how hard was it to try to make this happen? Were they, I mean, I can't imagine that they were, you know, went gently into the night as it were. <laughs> well, these kinds of policy changes take a long time. I've been working on this for 10 or 15 years. Wow. The bill that we passed, we actually started working on in 2002. So it's been over 10 years. And we've worked on it by, you know, working at the local level with school districts and with states with, you know, putting pressure on the snack food and beverage industries over time. Right. And so, Ten years ago, this was a really controversial issue that the industry completely opposed. But yeah. by the time we passed the bill, Coke and Pepsi were on board, and a lot of snack food manufacturers as well, and just realized, like, it's just too much bad PR for them. Mm-hmm. They can sell water and juice instead. And so by now, when these regulations came out, the American Beverage Association supported them. Wow. So, you know, this issue has evolved I think given how much concern parents have about childhood obesity and their kids' eating habits and how much support has grown for getting junk food out of schools. Like, anymore, this is like a non-controversial, no-brainer issue. But 10 years ago, it was totally different, very controversial. Well, I think, I mean, to be honest, I can't imagine that it's not still on some level kind of controversial for the industry because, I mean, after all, they have to kind of, um, in a way, they have to sort of develop new products that they can slot into this market share, right? Because, um, you know, this is a gigantic, these are gigantic contracts. How much do you think this is worth? How much do you think, um, you know, do you have any sort of sense of the ballpark amount of, say, you know, how many hundreds of packages of Doritos have been sold in the, you know, or sold in any normal year and how that's going to change. And also what about the pricing? Are they going to be, are they going to charge more for their foods, for their snack foods if they're healthier? You know, school meals are much bigger business than all of these foods outside the meals. So for example, with beverages, companies, soft drink companies are selling about 1% of beverages in schools. So most of their sales are outside of schools. Why they like to be in schools is mostly about marketing. And mm-hmm. almost all the school sales are exclusive soft drink contracts. So it's a Coke school. It's a Pepsi school. Because they want the kid to see the fronts of the vending machine with Coca-Cola. 
Coca-Cola on its scoreboard signage in school, and they want to cultivate that brand loyalty over a lifetime. So I think the beverage companies especially have mostly been in schools to cultivate that brand loyalty, to market to kids so that they they can cultivate this future market. So the direct sales are modest compared with their interest in selling in schools marketing approach. And so I think that'll be effective. Now, the good news is, is that schools don't lose money generally. Right. School's fine. Kids are hungry. They're thirsty. It might take a little time to figure out the right mix of products, you know, because for years they've been selling ho-hos and bear claws and burritos, and they got to figure out what the kids will eat instead. And so sometimes there's an adjustment period, but once they get the right mix of products, the kids are hungry and they'll eat what's there. You know, if you give a kid a choice between ho-hos and an apple, the apple doesn't stand a very good chance. (laughs) But if they have, you know, apples, oranges, pears, grapes, the kids like them and they'll eat something. Mm. But those products wouldn't come out, I mean, fruit's not going to come out of a vending machine, is it? Or do they put it in a little cup and package it that way? Well, they'll sell it in the a la carte line in the cafeteria. And then for um, the vending machine, you'll see, I think we'll see a lot more fruit cups. And, you know, even though some people complain about the um, sugar in fruit cups, really, you know, a peach cup with light syrup is a whole lot better than a bag of chips. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, (laughs) I I wouldn't object to that. I mean, just the idea that the child is even developing a taste for fruit, even if it isn't the most, you know, perfect way of delivering it. Um, So I was also curious about whether or not these, I mean, I haven't been in a, you know, I don't remember whether my daughter's elementary school had vending machines. Is Is this an issue that is primarily middle and, and upper level schools, or is it K through 12? There are foods sold in the cafeteria a la carte in elementary schools, but not a lot of vending. And then as the kids get older, you see more and more foods outside of the meal program. So the problem is much bigger in high school. Right. With vending, a la carte, school stores, there's more venues, more sales. And I think also more stigma. You know, when the kids are little, they like school lunch. It's kind of fun to go and buy the lunch and get your tray and get something different than what your parents are making at home. Mm-hmm. But as the kids get older, more and more schools have a problem appealing and marketing to the kids. And as you mentioned before, we really need to do a lot of work to make the school lunch appealing, how it's presented, how it's, what it's named. You know, how, the kids are used to eating out. If you just call it, you know, a turkey sandwich, you know, maybe it'll sound okay, but if you call it, you know, a chipotle turkey sandwich and you put a little bit of spicy jalapeno chutney on it or something, you know, kids are, have more refined palates than kids did in the past, and they're wanting to try new kinds of foods. And so the school needs to work with the kids to figure out what to name the food, which mm-hmm. items the kids like best, and explore healthy foods that kids like that they can put on the menu so that participation will be high. The more kids that participate, the better the school does financially. And the better it is for low-income kids. You don't want the higher-income kids bringing their lunch and buying a la carte or going off campus and then the program, you know, being only for low-income kids. That that kind of model doesn't work very well. There's more stigma. And then the low-income kids don't want to participate. 
Okay, cause it's not cool. Yeah, I know. One of the things that people brought up over and over again last night in this mayoral forum was the stigma of school lunch. And um, I have to say that my daughter, from the literally from the age of you know probably first grade, would cry if I said I think you should eat school lunch because it was just the food was just so gross to her. It was just gross. And um, and I but I, I I never got the sense that there was at least from her I never really got the sense that there was a big stigma attached to the idea of having school lunch. But now I'm hearing from all these candidates over and over again, this is a big deal. And I guess, you know, I don't know how you overcome that, um, aside from making this the school lunch so incredibly seductive and delicious that nobody can possibly resist it. And it's very cool to eat it. I don't know how you fix that problem, but <laughs> especially well, with the budget on, we have for school lunch. If you're on Pinterest, check out um, the, the Center for Science and the Public Interest Pinterest board mm-hmm. on school lunch, and you will see some beautiful meals that are being sold around the country for school lunch. Schools have really gotten very innovative and just presenting the food more attractively, working with the kids to figure out what they like, what they'll eat. And there are some school lunches that I would be happy to eat right. every single day. The problem is, is in schools that aren't doing that. And we have some resources. So does the so does USDA and the School Nutrition Association and others, the Alliance for Healthier Generation, for parents whose kids are saying the school lunch is gross. Help those schools get connected to mm-hmm. USDA so they can get the technical assistance, the model menus, recipes that they need to serve a beautiful, tasty, healthy school lunch. Because schools are doing it. It's just not happening in every school around the country. Well, one of the biggest problems uh, is that there's no infrastructure in the school for it. I mean, a lot of schools, when they, you know, when they basically abandon the idea of buying, of actually making food from scratch, they essentially eviscerated their kitchens, and so they may have only a bunch of deck ovens. Um, And they certainly, many schools do not have any kind of trained personnel who are able to uh, manage the idea of making, you know, eight hundred or two thousand school lunches a day. I mean, it's 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 not easy to do. and there isn't a lot of funding there to revamp school kitchens and cafeterias. And that's what I hear is the biggest impediment to um, rede- redeveloping the whole concept of school lunch because they simply do not have the physical infrastructure or the, or the staff training that would make that happen. How, ca- how do you think that could be um, funded better or, or overcome as a challenge? Both of those issues are really important. Um, We were able to get a big infusion of funds for school equipment with the economic stimulus package a few Mm. years ago, but Mm -hmm. that also showed us how big the need is because schools applied for about six times more money than what was available. And so we're working with the Pew Charitable Trust, which is heading up an effort to try to provide more funding for school infrastructure. So I think that's really important. The other thing that's in the works that USDA will be coming out with soon are new professional standards for food service workers. Oh, how interesting. That food service gets the training and education they need in order to serve healthy, delicious, appealing, you know, meals on the school, but, you know, with the money that they have. Because what you see is some food service directors can take the reimbursements that they're currently getting and provide healthy, delicious school lunches, and others just can't do it. Yeah. So we've got to help those ones that can't do it 
to get there. But Marco, isn't the average, you know, reimbursement for a school lunch something like 93 cents? Or I mean, I remember that uh, a few years ago, it was, you know, it went up by just a few cents instead of the dollar four that most activists were hoping for the dollar 15. It went from, I don't know, 92 to 96 cents or something ridiculous like that. I mean, it's it's you've got to be pretty creative. Um, to make that work in the context of making something really tasty and interesting and also offering choice on a menu as opposed to just like, you know, ladling up a plate of rice and beans, which we all agree would be, um, you know, cheap and nutritious, but not necessarily Mm -hmm. something that everybody would eat. It is. um, The reimbursement is around $3 per child. And so it's not the ideal amount of money, but lots and lots of schools, the majority of schools make that work. One of the things, you know, it does take skills and creativity. The other thing that helps is if you have a bigger program. You know, usually mm-hmm. with more kids participating in economies of scales, that works better. You know, that's usually more um, effective. Sure. Program that is, you know, able to work within the reimbursement rate. It's harder for smaller schools, maybe rural places, places where labor is very expensive. So there are some other factors that, can get in the way. We worked really hard in the last child nutrition reauthorization to try to get an increase in reimbursement. Right. And for the first time ever, we were able to get an increase, but it was only an additional six cents per lunch. Right. And let me just and, roll you back for one second. That was because hard work. Yes, it was. And when you talk about the $3 per person entitlement, you know, over $2 of that or just around $2 of that goes into administrative costs and delivery and distribution and all of that kind of stuff. So, I mean, what I'm talking about is the actual budget for the food itself, right? Shouldn't we make yeah, break so that down a little bit there? Labor is a big cost for yeah. schools. Um, and it depends. You know, some of them have that labor in-house and cook from scratch. And then other pay for that labor kind of by buying foods that are more highly processed. Sure. So there's less cooking in the kitchen. But labor is a big part of it. You know, oftentimes schools do spend just a little over a dollar on the food itself. And again, you know, working on your labor costs and figuring out how to make it work is, it's challenging. Very it's challenging. It's doable at the current reimbursement rate, but it's challenging. Yeah, definitely. Now, the, competitive, the competitive foods, people think about school vending contracts and, you know, selling soda and junk food in schools is being so lucrative because they'll hear about the occasional million-dollar contract or $100,000 contract. But if you actually look at how much money schools are making by selling junk food to kids, it's not as impressive as you would think. The typical beverage contract brings in about a little under $20 per student per Mm -hmm. year. Mm -hmm. And so in a big school district, that can be a good amount of money. But there are other ways, healthier ways, to raise $20 per student per year. You know, we shouldn't sell our kids' health out in order to raise $20 per student per year. It's just not worth it. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, Unfortunately, we have to wrap this up. um, But I wanted to ask you one last question, which was I know that your efforts um, and the, you know, Center for Science and the Public Interest and all the other advocacy groups that have worked on these issues around school food are part of Michelle Obama's overall effort to deal with uh, childhood obesity. So how what kind of grade would you give her program and and how and where is she taking this uh, campaign further in the in the next you know part of of their uh, legacy here, shall we say, as as ne- the next term of the presidency unfolds. You know, it's great after working on these issues for twenty years to have someone with the visibility and celebrity of mm-hmm. Michelle Obama 
paying attention to the issues and, and working on them. It's really been a great complement to the work that we're doing. And, and they've done, they played a very key role in helping to pass the law that required these new standards and in getting these standards out in a timely way. Um, but there's still a lot of work to do. And for people who are interested, we would love to work with more organizations and, you know, harness the energy of, you know, concerned parents and concerned citizens and folks can go to our website to learn more. They can follow us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, <laughs> and there are lots of ways to get involved. You know, it's so easy to make a difference in, around food policy, and most people just don't know how to do it. You know, a simple letter to USDA telling them you want strong food standards really makes a difference. They really pay attention to that. That's fantastic. Well, Margo, thank you so much for joining me today. Again, folks, you've been listening to Margo Wooten, who is the director of, um, well, part of, one of the directors of the Center for Science and the Public Interest, who has been absolutely seminal in, in pushing these new regulations around competitive foods in the school system uh, towards a healthier outcome for uh, children. And um, I hope we can talk again, Margo. This is great. I really appreciate it. Oh, I would love that. Okay, great. Thank well, you for we'll having be in me. touch. My pleasure. Thanks again. This has been an episode of What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. We learned a lot today about school food. Thanks to my sponsor, White Oak Pastures, and to my engineer. And we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening, folks. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website, or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.